Hello, I'm Noel Lim on ASEAN Speaks by Maybank. Here on this call with me is Robert Stebbins, AJ Mayer Professor of Energy and Economic Development at the Harvard Kennedy School. So as Momentum builds up towards COP28 that will take place in the UAE, I speak to him on what we can expect and the progress of the Loss and Damage Fund. Rob, thank you for being with us. Maybe we can start by describing your role as an insider in all these various climate talks. Tell us more. The United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change from 1992 contained in it a provision not only that there would be these periodic annual conferences of the parties, but that there would be a place at the Conference of the Parties, not just for the parties, that is the signatories, the countries and the European Union, but also for what they referred to as civil society. And civil society turns out to mean NGOs, non-governmental organizations of all kinds. It also means trade associations from private industry, uh, universities, the multilateral development banks, all of these parties have a role to play. So I come in in that way, um, leading a delegation from Harvard University, because we are one of the many official observer organizations. And so I lead a delegation and we come to the COP each year. Um, we make presentations and we organize side events. Uh, I also make presentations and participate in side events that other parties organize. Um, I typically speak at panels that are set up in some of the pavilions, in particular in recent years, I've been invited each year to speak at the China Pavilion and the Korea Pavilion, but also at some others now and then. And then perhaps most importantly, we hold a series of individual meetings with uh, countries. So for example, at COP28, um, we're gonna be talking a lot about efforts to reduce global methane emissions because I'm now directing a Harvard University wide initiative, which I call the soup to nuts project because it involves everything from satellite detection of concentration to at the other extreme developing policies and implementation through the world of government and, and business. We have 17 faculty members across the university from four departments in the Faculty of Arts and Sciences and five professional schools all working on this. And I'll be reporting out uh, at COP28 on this. And then I'll be engaging with interested parties to talk about our work, to learn what they're doing, and exchanges of views. A breakthrough at COP27 last year is the agreement to create a loss and damage fund. The US is supportive on paper, but it will be difficult to get funding past the House of Representatives. China, although still classified as developing, will face increasing pressure to join developed countries to contribute. What is the likelihood of this fund becoming operational, say, in five to ten years? Um, what's the time frame you're looking at? Given experience with the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change and the annual negotiations, it's, it's difficult to make predictions five to ten years out because within that range, things change. If you went back five years you would certainly not predict that there would be support for a fund for loss and damage. That said, I think the reality is that for the short term, by which I'll say the next 
four to five years or so, it's you know very unlikely that China is going to change it to this logic politics, as you said. Uh, it's unlikely, unless there's a change in domestic politics, that the United States is going to be able to contribute to the fund. That said, it probably is true that some European countries will make contributions. They're not going to be of the size that developing countries would like to see, but they will make contributions. Uh, some European countries have already announced contributions. They did back at uh, COP27. So that's already there on record. What can realistically be achieved at COP28 this year for this loss and damage fund? So I don't think a lot is going to happen that's meaningful with the loss and damage fund. Um, to some degree, people will be happy to rest on their laurels of having created it. There will be discussions, I'm sure, of the implementation of it, the makeup of the uh, committee that's running it, and how they're going to dispense with funds. And there will also be a lot of grandstanding, a lot of statements by countries of the importance of the wealthy countries, um, and in particular, the two big contributors to the stock, United States and China, making contributions. So those will be speeches from the floor, but that doesn't mean that there will be a lot of action. If COP28 is going to be held in the Middle East, um, do you see or do you foresee the Middle East, the Middle Eastern countries making some contribution to this fund? We have to distinguish in the case of the Middle East of the relatively wealthy Gulf oil states from some of the poor countries of the Middle East. So, I mean, the the countries that are wealthy in the Middle East are essentially the Gulf oil states plus Israel. But then there are a lot of other countries, Syria, Jordan, uh, Egypt, that are certainly not wealthy countries. I would anticipate that given that the talks are being held in the UAE, that the UAE government, the presidency of the COP, will make a positive statement with regard to a contribution to the loss and damage fund. The, the host of the conference usually takes some kind of positive action on whatever the issues of the day are. So looking more broadly, if the conflict between U.S. and China continues to escalate, climate agreements could end up being uh, collateral damage, and I think you alluded to that. Uh, how can other countries step up to keep negotiations warm? The one party to the UNFCCC that has been consistent over time, that is always there, that is always trying to move things ahead, is, of course, the European Union. There are times when other countries become very aggressive, sometimes because of the fact that they're hosting the COP, the Conference of the Parties, but also for other reasons. And of course, there was a period of time during the Obama administration years in which the United States and China played a role of co-leadership. Now, that disappeared um, when Mr. Trump became president, and he actually wanted to withdraw the U.S. from the Paris Agreement, if not from the UNFCCC. And with the Biden administration, although there's a lot of lip service to it, um, because of the fact that China and the U.S., but in terms of international trade, intellectual property rights, child labor, uh, democracy in Hong Kong, threats to Taiwan, 
security in the South China Sea, all of those are now points of contention between these two countries. And the result, as you said, is that climate policy is essentially collateral damage. Now, it is the one area which there is a certain amount of agreement between the U.S. and China. And so it's possible that Xi Jinping, the head of the U.S., be able to begin to work together in the lead up to COP28. Uh, I just don't know. Talking about this conflict, the restrictions in importing green technology and equipment from China into U.S., is that necessarily good or bad for the U.S. in terms of um, the sustainability agenda? From the perspective of an environmental economist, it's unambiguously good news because international trade is good news. Um, Products being produced essentially in those countries that have comparative advantage in the production of those products makes everyone better off. But the Trump administration introduced through its America First policy a period of protectionism. And that's been continued by the Biden administration with its uh, American manufacturing first policy. And as you may know, there are domestic content requirements in some parts of the Inflation Reduction Act, which is essentially the U.S. climate policy. So that's viewed now by people at the White House as a problem for the U.S. to be importing uh, low-cost batteries, photovoltaics, solar panels, and the like from China. Um, and that, unfortunately, is going to increase costs, which is then bad economically for U.S. consumers. It's also uh, bad for reducing emissions because it's driving up costs. And when you're driving up costs, you're going to see a less adoption of the specific technologies. But what would be the upside of these restrictions? Well, the upside that the administration sees has to do with uh, a single word, and that's jobs. Um, because, and that, in other words, voters. That's what it's about. And this populism now that has infected the uh, United States and a number of other countries, not just the U.S., um, it brings with it protectionism, and, and it's politically popular. It's one of the few things, by the way, that Republicans and Democrats agree on in the United States is a protectionist policy, um, particularly with bashing of China elements included. There's, there's agreement from the right and the left. I think it's only moderates and economists like myself um, that are not supportive of that. So bringing it back to COP28 in November, the stated ambition is to rethink, reboot and refocus the climate agenda. I know these are really big words, but what must be done urgently and agreed upon in your view? In official terms, the big objective of COP28 is this global stock take. It takes place every five years. So it's due now. And that what that stock take means is adding up the, not just the NDCs, because those aren't necessarily achieved, adding up what's been achieved by the different countries, comparing that to a trajectory to achieve what is the objective of the Paris Agreement, which is 
maximizing global temperature increases this century uh, at two degrees centigrade uh, relative to the pre-industrial period if and if possible at one and a half degrees centigrade and then as a result of that stock take um, imploring countries if necessary to take more aggressive action so that'll certainly be part of the agenda because that's officially on the agenda i think we may also see uh some increased attention to uh carbon removal uh and associated technologies in other words, the Paris Agreement is mainly about mitigation. It's now recognized that adaptation is also important. It's also officially recognized that not all uh, damages can be adapted, and that's why we have the Loss and Damage Fund. But in addition to all that, I think there is increasing recognition, although it's still on the margins and still somewhat controversial, that we may need uh, carbon removal uh, and geoengineering technologies at some point. And so I'm including in that uh, biological carbon sequestration that is afforestation essentially in many parts of the world, also direct carbon removal from the atmosphere, which is the technologies are currently high cost, but there's a lot of research um, and development going on in that, not just government funded research, but private sector research, number of companies are working on direct carbon removal technologies. And then also uh, 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 these geoengineering approaches, such as putting particles high in the atmosphere. Uh, I think all of these are going to receive increased attention compared with the past. But saying that it's increased it might still be at a low level because the attention they've received in the past has been zero. So what could be an outcome of all that discussion, like another global fund, a fund for carbon capture and storage, for example, and maybe with some sizable investments from the UAE? So I don't think that there's going to be anything official uh, in, the, in the taking place in the COP. At the very most, in the decision, essentially the statement that comes out of the COP at the end that the countries vote on, usually on, if not on Friday, then our, on Saturday of the second week, it's possible that there will be a sentence, a word, or a phrase that alludes to carbon removal technologies. But we might not even see that. I, I, all that I would predict is that we'll see more events, you know, like these side events, including the ones sponsored by governments, we'll see more attention to it, not necessarily statements from the plenary. There will be some side events, and, and some of those will be government-sponsored side events. The presidency of the COP will host a number of these side events. Some will be by um, trade groups. Some will be by NGOs of all kinds. And I think we'll see more attention in those than we have in the past to carbon uh, removal you know, written broadly. That That's all that I'm suggesting. When I look at some of the previous COPs and I look at the news coverage, and I cannot help but think that Southeast Asian countries uh, need to speak up more and have their voices heard in um, such international talks, especially when it is predicted that um, Southeast Asia is going to be a major economic bloc. I think we're looking to be the fourth largest in the world by 2030. 
in your mind, um, how can Southeast Asian countries elevate its uh, collective voice and presence in, in some of these climate talks? There are a couple of ways. I mean, I believe that, the, I may be wrong about this, but in my memory, the last time that a conference of the parties was held in Southeast Asia was the Bali conference in Indonesia. So that's quite a while ago. So um, one thing to do is to host a conference of the parties because that immediately, immediately elevates not just the host countries, but the region in terms of uh, the role that they play. So that's one thing that could be done. The other are agreements among Southeast Asian countries. Now, for, for example, there was a period of time in which there were talks taking place. I don't think these were public, but there were talks taking place uh, between uh, a number of countries, which included, as I recall, Singapore, Vietnam, Thailand, New Zealand, Japan, and I don't recall if China was involved, on linking their policies, essentially linking cap and trade policies that a lot of these, oh, and Korea, Korea for sure, South Korea, um, in terms of linking their policies together, because at that time, Korea was launching its cap and trade system, and there was interest in other countries. Um, something like that, you know, forming a consortium, in other words, uh, of like-minded countries um, in Southeast Asia, that would elevate tremendously their importance and the role that they would then play in international negotiations. When I look at Southeast Asia, it comes to mind is Indonesia. Um, is there a way uh -huh. that it should negotiate, you know, to have a more influential role in, in these talks? Certainly, you know, given the size of the country and population and economy, it plays an exceptionally important role and could, if it wanted to, play a elevated role in the in the uh, negotiations. Um, it hasn't demonstrated that in recent years, but it, it can do it. I mean, there are straightforward ways to do it. You host uh, events, you host events both at the pavilion that Indonesia will have, but also in these official side events that take place. It can also make statements on the floor, statements that are departures from traditional positions and hence gain a lot of attention. But that's something for the, the government of Indonesia to decide. As a person looking in, it feels like the progress on climate action is really slow. I appreciate it's complex because it's a global agenda. Would you say this pace is reasonable? When you're dealing with 195 countries, uh, essentially, to reach you know meaningful decisions, the Paris Agreement took a very important step in that it has an approach, essentially this, this bottom-up nationally determined contributions that led to a greatly expanded scope. We went from 14% of global emissions under the second commitment period of the Kyoto Protocol to about 97% of emissions with associated countries under the Paris Agreement. But that same device that led to very broad scope also almost guarantees that the ambition of the individual countries is not going to be very great because it's tied in with domestic politics. Now, I think that's a reasonable trade-off. I think the Paris Agreement provides a foundation for moving forward, but we, wouldn't, we shouldn't think that it's going to happen um, at a very rapid pace. 
Rob, it's been a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you for your time and insights. It's my pleasure. Take care. That was Robert Stevins, AJ Mayer Professor of Energy and Economic Development at the Harvard Kennedy School. I'm Noel Limonazian Speaks by Maybank. Bank. 